0: If you have your Bibles, please open to Philippians chapter 2. As we continue our sermon series out of Philippians, we've entitled the whole sermon series, To Live is Christ. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi in Macedonia, a church that he had founded some 15 years earlier, and Paul is in prison uh, awaiting trial before Caesar as he writes this letter to them. And as we come into chapter 2, we're going to be looking today at verses 12 through 18. And I'm going to give you the context. If you weren't here last week, we looked at the famous Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 5-11, where Paul says that we are to have the same mind that Christ Jesus had when he came, to, when he came from glory to earth. Paul says in verses 5-11 through 11 of Philippians 2 that Christ, in his pre-incarnate glory, chose to humble himself, to leave heaven take on a human form and then that he further humbled himself by becoming a servant and then he further humbled himself by becoming a servant who was obedient even to death and death on the cross and then that, that Christ him ends by saying for that reason because of Christ's self-humiliation because of the mind that was in him because he chose to humble himself Because of that, the Father has chosen to exalt Jesus and to give him the highest place, to give him the name that is above every name. And then there is coming a day, it says at the end there in verses 10 through 11, there's coming a day when every conscious being and creature in all of the cosmos will declare and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now in our text today, As we shift to verses 12 through 18, Paul is going to begin by saying, therefore, that's super important. He says, therefore, in light of everything that you've seen in Jesus, in light of seeing him count others as more important than himself, in seeing him lay down his own rights and his own privileges for the glory of God and the good of others, in light of seeing his humility in light of God's plans, now you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In light of everything that you've seen, you have to do that. Now, Paul is going to tell the Philippian church to work out their salvation with fear and trembling in light of Jesus. Now, he's going to do that by telling us that there are several assurances that we have. That's why we say blessed assurance. There are several assurances we have in Christ and then there are several evidences that should be plain to the world of Christ's transforming power in our lives. So let's look there, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, this is what Paul says, therefore, my beloved, he loves the Philippian church, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to break this, as I've said in my introduction, into two main sections. The first thing I want you to see is the blessed assurances that we have in Christ. There are two main assurances in this text that we need to take to heart and we need to build our faith upon. The first assurance is this. It's found in verse 13. It is the assurance that God works in us. Look there what he says in verse 13. He says, it is God who works in you. The reason we work out our salvation with fear and trembling is because we have this assurance, this promise, this confidence that it is God who works in you. Now, the text literally says, God works in you all. It is plural. Remember, he's writing to the church corporately. He's reminding them that it is God who is working in them together. Now look back at verse 6 where Paul has already brought this up to their attention. He's already told the Philippian church and reminded them of God's work. Look what it says in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, I am sure of this. Notice it's a confidence, it's an assurance. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And here Paul reminds them again, it's God who is working in you. It is God who is at work in the Philippian church. Paul belabors this point here in Philippians 1 over and over again that our salvation, hear me, our salvation always, 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 write it down, always, always begins with God's sovereign work in our lives. Amen? It is God who is at work in you. It's not me working on myself. It is God who is at work in his people. Now, Paul does this. Paul wants the Philippians to have this assurance because it is critically important that we have a humble posture towards God such that we can only boast in his work in us. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in God's work. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 about this. So that you won't boast in yourself, you'll only boast in what Christ has done. He says, God chose, that's God's work, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then he says, and because of Him, because of God's work, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then Paul repeats, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what does this teach us? This teaches us that God is the primary actor. God is the primary worker. It is God's work. And Paul's point is that we have the assurance That God is the one who is at work in our church. He is the one that will save us. God is the one who will transform us. And then look at verse 13, what Paul adds. He says, it is God who is at work in you to do something. He says, it is God who works in you all, both to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pleasure, And this is what that means. What that means is that every desire you have to honor Christ, every longing you have to grow in Christ, every desire you have to pray, every yearning to read God's Word, every want in your heart to honor Christ, to praise Christ, to share Christ, to put sin to death, to humble yourself, to die to pride, to give generously, open-handedly, every yearning you have to serve others, every longing to minister, every impetus to obey Christ's commands is a God-given desire based on God's work in your life. None of those things comes from you. That is the working of God's Spirit in your heart. God is working in us all to produce His will and His desires. They don't come from us. You know why I know that? The Bible says there's none good. No, not one. There's not one who understands. Nothing good comes out of us naturally. Amen. Amen. So the point is, whenever you have those desires that are not innate in you, that those are God-given desires where God is working in you. You can rejoice in that. Listen, God is working to undo our natural sinful propensities. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5. He says it's easy to tell what naturally comes from us, right? He says, now the works of the flesh are evident... Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. He says, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what comes from us. Those are the desires that are innate in us. That's as natural to us as stink on poop. Some of you think your poop don't stink. This is it. This is what's naturally in us. Those things have no place in the kingdom of Christ. But then Paul goes on to say this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. So the first blessed assurance we have... That is that God is at work in us and will continue to work in us. His desires shape our desires. His will shapes our will. God is working in us to shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus and to fit us for His kingdom. That is an incredible assurance. As sure as, sure as the little song we teach kids, God's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. took Him just a few days to make the sun the moon and the stars above and i forget the rest of the words or i'd sing it to you but god is working in us to produce that in us and we have that assurance listen some of us might be struggling some of us might feel like we're behind the curve some of us might feel like we're just a stumbler and a struggler and a herder and nothing is ever right if jesus is your lord he will not abandon his promise he works on his children and is that good news Every God, every God-given desire in you is a moment for you to stop and go, "Thank you Jesus for the work you're doing in me to produce that." Listen, that's a good assurance. The second assurance is this, it is just as good. The second assurance is found in verse fourteen, and that assurance is we are the children of God. We are the children of God. Look what he says there in verse fourteen. He says, um, he, says he says in verse fourteen, he says, Um, You do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless, innocent children of God. John one twelve and John, uh, John, the the apostle, says this in in the opening of his gospel of John. He says, but to all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Remember, that's God's good work. They were born of God. Now this is what happened in Philippi. Remember the story there in Acts when Paul comes to Philippi and he shares the good news of Jesus out by the river and Lydia, God moves Lydia's heart to pay attention to Paul and she is born into God's family. And then Paul is arrested and he's in jail. And the Philippian jailer, after hearing the gospel, he receives Jesus and is baptized along with his wife and his children. And they're born into God's family by faith. Others join them in repentance and faith in Philippi and become children of God. Every person who receives Jesus receives adoption into his family. That is an assurance. First John chapter 3 says, See what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. I am who you say I am. Not because of any innate goodness in me, but all because of the sheer grace of God found in the gospel. That is an amazing assurance. So the second assurance we have in Christ is we are his children. We have a loving father. We have a good father. We have a father who will not fail and cannot fail. He will keep his children. He will not abandon them. His grace has brought us safe thus far and his grace will lead us home. Those are the assurances we have in Jesus. But now I want you to look at the blessed evidences that Christ is at work in us. This is how we work out our salvation in the view of people. These are the evidences that God is at work in us and we are his children. So they're going to give you four evidences here. So we have assurances of God's work in us. And then these are four evidences that work themselves out in our life in view of all people. The first is this, obedience to Christ's commands. Look what it says in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved... As you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now what Paul does here is he commends the Philippians for their past obedience and for their ongoing obedience to to Christ's word. And now he challenges them to continue obeying Christ in his absence. Now here, I want to say this very carefully, because every time someone talks about obedience, people run towards legalism, or they run towards earning somebody, or earning your salvation. No, listen. Listen, very carefully. Obedience does not earn salvation. But it does evidence God's salvation. It is a fruit of God's work in our life. Remember, This comes right on the heels of Paul telling the Philippian church that Jesus became obedient even to death on the cross. And we are to have the same mind as Jesus. So we follow our master and his example. We obey like Jesus obeyed. Past obedience is good, but it cannot replace daily, ongoing obedience to Jesus. So what we do is we, we follow Jesus day by day as Lord. After all, what does Jesus tell his disciples? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. God's people have always been evidenced by those who are willing to hear, receive, and obey God's word by faith, because we know it's for our good and our blessing. I heard one pastor say it this way, you only believe the parts of the Bible you obey, that's what it is. Obedience has to be issued from faith. And my struggle with obedience is actually my struggle to hear God's word and respond in faith. I only obey the parts that I. I only believe the parts that I obey. So that's the first evidence of God's work in us. When God works in His people, He transforms them towards obedience. Second evidence. The second evidence is holy reverence towards God's work in us. A holy reverence towards God's work in us. Look at the end of verse 12 there. He says, in light of everything that's happened, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This working out is corporate and public. All right? Remember, Paul is using here, he's writing to the church, and he's using the second person plural form of the verb. You all work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, all of us work it out together. Paul's point is that we do this in view of the world. Listen, the church is Jesus' idea. Jesus died for his people in order to redeem for himself a people who were zealous for his name and for his renown and for his glory. So the church is meant to be a visible testimony to the world of God's saving grace in Jesus. That's why we're here. We're to be a visible testimony to the world of God's saving grace in Jesus. But I want you to pay very close attention to Paul's terminology. Pay attention to the prepositions here. Notice what Paul says. We work out our salvation. He does not say we work for our salvation. It is a very different preposition. He says we don't work for our salvation. We don't work with God to save us, no, salvation is holy from first to last, all of God's grace, but God's gracious activity among us is a transforming grace that enables us to grow in Jesus and to glorify Him in our daily lives. Listen, God works in us and we work work our salvation outwardly and corporately as a church. And that should produce in us a holy reverence for what God is doing. Hear me. The truth of a holy God doing a holy work should lead us to holy reverence. We do this with fear and trembling. Now, Paul isn't trying to produce anxiety in us or fear of failing. Because if you understand the gospel, you understand you're a sinner from first to last. And you're going to go to heaven in spite of your sinfulness. It's by God's grace. So Paul isn't producing anxiety. What he's trying to produce in us is a reverence towards God's transforming power. Now, let me try to apply this to us as a church. This is so important. We're just saying God's praises together. Think about what what this means, this holy reverence towards God's work. When we gather as a church body here on Sunday mornings and we sing God's praises, when we celebrate communion, which we will do next Sunday, and we open God's word together, we have to come into this place knowing that God is at work among us and he works in us. And we evidence that work by how we respond to God. We prepare our hearts for worship. We repent of our sins and we pursue holiness together. We love one another in light of the gospel. We forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. We dare not come here. Hear me. Say this especially to um, those that might have this temptation. We dare not come here and distract our brothers and sisters from God's holy work in our lives. We dare not do that. We dare not treat Sunday worship as trivial or unimportant or boring. At the same time, we also dare not add unnecessary barriers of formality. We come to meet with Jesus and be changed by his grace. Is that why we're here? We are here not because the preacher's good or the music's good or because I don't have anything else to do or because I'm just giving Mama time to cook dinner before I come home for lunch. We're here to meet with Jesus and be transformed by his grace. That should produce in us a holy reverence. Not a format, not where everything's formal, but where we're here with sincere hearts. Jesus changed me. And then thirdly, This is the third evidence. Living joyfully and blamelessly under God's sovereign purposes. We should have this evidence of living joyfully, you should write that down, living joyfully and blamelessly under God's sovereign purposes. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is where I will begin to step on everybody's toes. He says in verses 14 and 15, Do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. These are things we're to do together as a church. As a church, we do all things without grumbling or complaining. Adrian Rogers, one of my favorite preachers, used to say this, God has called us to be humbly grateful, but most of us are grumbly hateful. We got that backwards. We're not supposed to be grumbly hateful. We're supposed to be humbly grateful. Here's the issue. If God is at work in all of our lives and in all of our circumstances, then we cannot be a people who whine and grumble and complain about God's plans and purposes. Paul is writing this from prison. He says, and and the Philippians are undergoing persecution. It's not easy to be a Christian in Philippi. And Paul says, if God is really at work in you, and God has brought salvation to you, you have to bear up under this in a certain way. And it can't be with grumbling or complaining. My former pastor, when when I was a youth pastor, my former pastor had a sign over his desk that said, right as you walked into his office, a sign over his desk that said, Thou shalt not whine and I asked him about it when I first started working there I said why do you have this sign over your desk he says it's the 11th commandment and I kind of laughed and I said what do you, what do you mean the 11th commandment that there are 10 commandments and he said no he says it's the 11th commandment he said God gave them 10 commandments and it took them 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to learn they shouldn't whine and complain it's the implied commandment it's number 11 thou shalt not whine now hear me Grumbling and complaining is a symptom. It's not the real disease. It's, you have to go deeper. The spiritual disease that causes grumbling and complaining, the root cause, is a heart of unbelief towards God. It's a heart that doesn't trust God's purposes, doesn't trust God's plans, doesn't trust in God's goodness. And listen, I've seen many a Christian ruin their, their, ruin their testimony and their witness By going on social media and grumbling and complaining about every single thing that ever happens. Listen, who would ever want what we have as a Christian if what we have makes us so miserable? That's why the evidence here, the evidence of this is living joyfully and blamelessly under God's providence. Listen, you can't shine like lights if you continue to spread darkness, that's what Paul is saying, right? When we, when we grumble and complain and dispute about everything, we ruin our personal witness, personally, but even more so, we ruin the corporate witness of our church. We have to honor Jesus together. When, if we grumble and complain about everything, then we are portraying... Hear me, this is why this is so... In my mind, it goes beyond grumbling and complaining. And I want to say this carefully... Because I think this is true. If we grumble and complain about everything, then we are portraying to the world that Jesus is a horrible master. I don't want to do that. The Jesus I know is gentle and humble and kind, and he is not a taskmaster, and he is not hard. I don't want the world to think he is difficult to follow. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is hard to follow Jesus but that's mostly because of my sinfulness that's not because of him and so that if i portray to the world that jesus doesn't bring joy and peace then i am lying to the world we aren't supposed to look and live like the crooked and the crooked generation around us and the wicked we're to shine like lights Like the stars against the backdrop of the darkness of space. And we do this by joyfully submitting ourselves to God's purposes, even when they are difficult. The Philippians know Paul's heart and attitude, right? When he was wrongfully um, in prison in Philippi, he didn't spend the night grumbling and complaining. What did he have in church? He, He had a church service in the middle of the jail. He's worshiping Jesus in the middle of the night. He didn't go on Twitter and Facebook and go, well, I'm locked up in jail. Woe is me. That's not what he did. He filled the jail with worship, not with complaining. And that attitude is what convinced the Philippian jailer that Jesus must be real. The best remedy, hear me, the best remedy for grumbling and complaining is to turn to Jesus in worship. Worship. Remember Job's response. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord no matter what difficulty I'm going through. How can we do this? I think the answer is in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, do all things for the sake of the gospel. So instead of doing all things with grumbling and complaining, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Ask yourself this question before you react, or before you post, or before you tweet, or before you respond, ask this question. Does my attitude here, does my response to this situation draw people closer to Jesus or push them away? If you can't answer that question, then I would say, don't do it. Don't do it. And so that is the third evidence joyfully and blamelessly living under God's sovereign purposes. But there's a fourth evidence here, and it's critical. The fourth and final evidence is found in verse 16. He says, He says there, Verse 16, so we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So then in the day of Christ Jesus, I may be proud that I not run in in vain or labor in vain. And he says there, I hold fast to the word of life. That's the gospel. The gospel is the word of life. It says so so very clearly in Acts 5, uh, 519, um, when an angel of the Lord opened the prison's doors and brought Peter out. And he tells them to go stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of life. The word of life. So we hold fast to the word of life. This means as believers, as a church, we cling to Jesus together. That is an evidence of God's work in us. We hold tight to Jesus. We may struggle with sin. Amen. We may stumble. Amen. We may fall down. But what do we do? We hold fast to Jesus. We hold fast to the gospel. It is the gospel that saves us, unites us, keeps us, preserves us. And the gospel is our unified hope as a church. It is our shared confession of faith. And we hold it fast and hold it out to the world around us. We hold fast to the gospel. as the final evidence of God's work in us. When, when, When God is at work in a church then you see these things working themselves out in our midst. This is us working out our salvation in view of the world. Now look at verses 17 through 18 as I close, as I wrap this up. Verses 17 and 18, Paul says this. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says this, this is a very, listen to Paul's heart here. Listen to the mind, of, the mind of Paul, which is also the mind of Christ. Paul says, I will gladly, like Jesus, give up my life for your good. I'm not going to grumble and complain about it. I will gladly sacrifice myself for your faith. That is not even hard for me. Instead of complaining about it, I am going to rejoice. If this is God's purpose, I'm going to rejoice. And then he says, and I invite you to rejoice with me. Now that is a Christ-like example of love, sacrifice, and joy. And that is evidence of, of Christ's work in Paul. What did Paul used to do for Christians? Used to do to Christians? He used to kill them. And now he says, I'll gladly lay down my life for my brothers and sisters. That is a testimony to the transforming power of God's grace in the life of a person Paul says, I'll gladly lay down my life for my brothers and sisters. I'll gladly do that. That is evidence of Christ's work in Paul, and that should be evidence of Christ's work in all of us. I'll close with Hebrews 10, where the the writer of Hebrews uh, commends the church there for having the mind and heart of Jesus in the midst of their persecutions, and what they do is they hold fast to the hope they have in Jesus. It says in Hebrews 10, he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, when you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. And he says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. He says, Therefore, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The confidence that God is the one at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This morning, as I close, I'm going to pray and then we'll move into a time of invitation. But I ask you to pray with me right now before we get offline. Father, we ask that your word right now has been spoken clearly, truthfully, carefully. But Father, I pray today we walk out of this room with with the assurance that Jesus is our Lord, that you are at work in us, and that we are the children of God. And Father, that only comes by placing our faith in Jesus. So Father, I pray for those in the room that might not have ever repented of their sins and placed their trust in Jesus. I pray you would speak to their hearts now and draw them to Christ. And for those of us that are sure of our calling, Father, I pray that your transforming power will work these evidences in our lives. Father, so that the world will see the glory and grace of Jesus in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.